Bed of Courage is about you and me. It's about ordinary people aspiring to live their best, most authentic life by overcoming vulnerability and fear. It's about finding our courage and sharing our stories and discovering in the process that we're a lot more similar than we are dissimilar. Bite of Courage is about hope, about connecting with others, about choosing love over fear, and having the courage to be who we're truly meant to be. Bite of Courage is about us. Welcome back to Bite of Courage. My guest today is Albert Ansel, founder and business owner of Rexford Rand Corporation. He spent the last 37 years developing and manufacturing environmentally safe chemicals for the maintenance of buildings, facilities, and equipment. And while he's proud of his professional success, he is most proud of his personal accomplishments. Al, who is a recovering alcoholic, has been sober almost 19 years, and I have had the very good fortune of knowing him for most of that time. Devoted to the practice of the 12-step principles of Alcoholics Anonymous in every aspect of his life, Al continues to be an inspiration to me in my own recovery and to countless others. Spending much of his free time being of service, he volunteers several evenings a week at Hinsdale Hospital in Illinois facilitating men and women who've relapsed from alcohol and drugs. And he also volunteers an afternoon a week, facilitating inmates who are awaiting criminal trial and sentencing at Illinois' Cook County Jail. Being an alcoholic in recovery is the third greatest gift of my life, he often says. I get to show up today, sober, but I can't do it by myself, no one can. That's what AA is all about, being of service, giving back and sharing my experience, strength, and hope with other alcoholics who suffer from this disease. Hello, Al. Hey, Mo. Welcome to Bite of Courage. I'm so grateful that you could be here today. Thank you for asking me. It's an honor, it's a privilege. Thank you. Well, I have a morning ritual that includes meditation. And this morning, my dear friend Kathleen, who is a yoga teacher, invited me to do a practice with her at her house because she knows how nervous I get about these things. So we were out back on her deck facing the sun doing our yoga and um, it was just the most beautiful way to start the day and to sort of get rid of some of my nerves and one of the thoughts that came over me was the serenity prayer so I thought in honor of our AA fellowship I'd take a risk by starting off this podcast in the same way that we often start our AA meetings together with the serenity prayer. Wonderful. Ready? Ready. God. God. Grant me this serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Amen. That was nice. I needed that. Yeah, me too. So I'm going to ask you the same thing I ask all my guests when I start, and that is your definition of courage. I really don't know what courage is. Um, Courage is always, for me, my experience, has, has, is the past tense through the rearview mirror. I don't know that I've ever acted out of courage. I've acted out of need. I've acted out of the moment. I've acted out of 
um, a desire to, or a need to be of help, to be of assistance. Um, I, I, courage is different than bravado. Courage is not chest thumping and, and being the first, uh, to, to do the bungee jump <laughs> or being the first to jump from an airplane. I mean, that's certainly fun and maybe foolhardy, but courage is something so much more internal. Would you say that you've acted out of fear? Absolutely. You know, I, I've, in the program, we hear that, you know, um, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is feeling the fear and taking the action. And that may be true, but that's also necessity. Mm-hmm. You know, I try not to get too tangled up into the philosophical aspects of a, of a word or a phrase. It's, it's easy for me to get lost in thought and become constipated <laughs> in in the intellectualism of, of and the philosophy of some of this stuff. I, I try and keep it so much more simple. I know that, you know, there have been uh, events in my life where I was called upon to take acts, have been not fully equipped to do them, to complete them, but saw them through. And, and people have said that was courageous. And I say it's necessity. It was just of the moment and it had to be done. You would probably agree and you probably heard of, you know, Brene Brown says that vulnerability and it, it sounds like the truth and it feels like courage. And I know for me and for you that when we're vulnerable and we're pushed to the, the edge and we can't resist change anymore that we have to do it. So it is in hindsight that we can see the courageous act. Vulnerability is huge risk. And risking know, everything to get it right. Well, just risk. Um, as a recovering addict, alcoholic, and and working with a great many of, I think of the the guys and and the women who will travel from a suburb to go down into the darkest areas of the city on a Saturday night, and and with twenty or forty dollars in their pocket, um, come up to that guy on the street corner who they know is holding a gun in order to to grab that bag of whatever it is that they're seeking. And they get the shakes and the willies on the way home as they contemplate cooking up that dope and injecting it into the vein, full well knowing that what they are injecting was not manufactured by Abbott Laboratories or Merck Laboratories, was not manufactured in any clean, you know, clean room. And so they inject this dope into their arm, hoping maybe it's not too loaded with fentanyl and that they'll see tomorrow morning. Mm. And to me, that's a risk. And they come into Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or Cocaine Anonymous or some 12-step program or, or into rehab and they're asked to get honest and to take a self-appraisal and to truly look at themselves. And and they they freeze in fear of the risk of honesty and an honest self-appraisal and to share and divulge with another human being those things that they've done, that they've encountered. Which is what you and, and I both had to do. We had to face that risk. So how did you do that? I had no choice. You know, God gives us self-will and unique among all living beings on the earth. He gives us self-will, free to do what it is that we choose to do. 
And I think that God also gives us that self-will so that it, we can beat us into submission to come back to him for the safety and, and um, uh, security that we seek. I know that my own story, I had to be beaten into submission by the drugs and the alcohol. Well, was alcohol your drug of choice or did you? I never met a drug I didn't like. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I did my first pill at 11 years old oh. in 1963. It was oxycodone. And, and having just recently had shoulder surgery, they hand me a bottle of 50 oxycodone, and I think, oh, no, mm. there's no escaping. So, you know, liquid leaf pill powder, it doesn't matter. Change how I feel. Change my perception. See, I don't see life, and I don't view the world the way life and the world is. I view the world as through, through the eyes of myself, the way I am. So if in the morning I walk out the door filled with fear, anxiety, victimhood, anger, jealousy, resentment, rage, I am sure to create an environment where I will meet all of those components head on in another person or another event. I will create the day to fulfill the need to destroy myself because I don't see the world the way the world is. Conversely, if I see the world and walk out the door the way you did this morning, to go for yoga, to go to relax, to go get centered, to find peace and grace, if I do that in the morning, when I walk out the door, I walk out the door filled with acceptance and tolerance and goodwill toward others. And that's what I pass on. So for this, the person out there listening who's still in that place, who walks out filled with rage and anger and the, any of the seven deadly sins, take your pick. And yeah, you're, yeah. you're going to work it out on somebody. Absolutely. How did you get to the point? You said you didn't have a choice. It, it was a last resort, as it was for me, to get into the program. I, 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 I was brought to my knees. Oh, yeah. So how did you get to that point? How, what, what's your advice for helping that person to, to bridge that gap? I hate to go to the big book because I'm a big Please? book. Yeah, you me know, too. In, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the ninth step promises on page 83, 84, if anybody wants to look at it, two of the most important promises that continue to be fulfilled in my life are that our whole outlook and attitude upon life will change. And that's everything. It's all or nothing. Recovery is all or nothing. I firmly believe there's a difference between sobriety and recovery. Sobriety is, you know, the dictionary says sobriety is absence of alcohol, abstinence. Recovery is a return to a better or a former place, a place of usefulness. So sobriety is necessary for recovery. But recovery is so much more than sobriety. Mm -hmm. And I know early in sobriety, I had a roommate. I was in rehab and I, I went for 28 days and stayed eight months. And um, I had a roommate, Chris, who, who, and, and a sponsor who's, who's repetitively, repetitively motto was seek the gift, seek the gift, seek the gift. In all things, seek the gift. And here it is almost 19 years, 18 years, in, in a week it'll be 19 years. And, and a few months ago, I'm, before I had this, this shoulder surgery, 
the pain in the middle of the night was horrible and it would wake me. And like most of us, middle of the night mind racing, the mind either goes to the future and awfulizes the events yet to come, mm -hmm. or I go to the past and try to rewrite history, either making me the victim or the hero, in which case, you know, it's all the mind. <laughs> so the only... So the only, the only alternative, the only safe alternative is to be in the present. Because I believe in a higher power. I believe in God. And, and, and I found that through Alcoholics Anonymous. And so God is only with me in the present because that's the only place I can be. God is not with me in the future. He will be there when I get there. But I can only be in the present. So I would lay in bed at night, one, two, three in the morning, racked in pain and trying to be in the present. And so I found that I would talk to God and tell him about all the people that I met during the day. And so tonight when I talk to God in the middle of the night, when I wake up and I'm gonna wake up, I'll, I'll talk to God about Mo and about this encounter and how, how challenging it is, how risky this is, how, how frightened I am of this how unsure I am of this, how unqualified I am to do this. And I'll talk to God about you. And I will talk to God about all the other people that I meet today. And then I'll talk to God about some of the people I need to pray for because I'm still me. Mm -hmm. But in the middle of this, I found that I was having one-on-one -on -one with God. And the pain would subside. The pain would go away. And it was just me and God. You immersed yourself in the pain. The pain became the gift. Mm. The, came, the pain brought me to God at a very personal level that was very rewarding and very giving. And I would wake, in, uh, I would wake up in the morning feeling different. So the gift is not to be avoided. The gift is to be sought in all things. We were talking earlier about the event with my, my now deceased father and helping him with wound care and, and um, helping him in a way that the doctors didn't see how to help him that ultimately helped him. And, and he asked me where I learned this and I'm on my knees, you know, fixing his calf. And um, I looked up at him and I said, you know, he said, where did you learn this? And I said, I learned it from you. It's common sense. And those are the gifts, seeking the gifts. How did your dad die? My father took his own life uh, with a gun, mm. and I found him. And that was eight years ago Friday. Today is Sunday. And um, he was at life's end. His, wall, his life was getting smaller, his world smaller and smaller and smaller. He's a very worldly man, self-made man. And, and uh, the last four years of his life, he would say, why am I still here? You know, all my friends are gone, all my, my family's gone, and all I want is my girlfriend and my Georgie girl. And his girlfriend was mom, and his Georgie girl was his favorite dog. Mm. And so um, I knew it would happen. You just and, didn't know how. Well, I knew how, because he, he um, We'd had many talks through the years, and he had asked me would I get him pills. And I, and I would tell him, no, no, I can't participate. I understand, 
and I accept and I honor that. That's a very personal decision. I honor that. Um, but I can't participate in that. He and I had a relationship that was open enough and honest enough and vulnerable enough and risky enough that was based really honor and mutual respect that we could be really at the end of life issues be so open. It's the gifts he gave me. You know, we all seek the gift. And in recovery, we all seek the parade. You know, somebody gets sober and or clean and they, they want the pat on the back from the family and the aunt and the uncle and mom and dad and the employers and the husbands, wives, girlfriends. Hey, you're doing a great job and oh, you're so wonderful and, and you're doing marvelous. And, and yeah, that's nice. But those are the self-seeking parades. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's true. And, and the parades we receive are so small. Well, one of the things I want to circle back, I know in the beginning, you said being an alcoholic in recovery is the third greatest oh, gift yeah. of my life. What did you mean? What were the first two? This, this comes as a result of the first step. And the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, all of them, all the AA programs use, I mean, all the, the A programs use the same basic first 12 steps. And the first step is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And the admitting of powerlessness, admitting is one thing, powerlessness is brutal. Powerlessness is the end of the world, the end of the line. We'll never have fun again. Life as I know it is over. I might as well become a Trappist monk, <laughs> right? And so it's, it's, it's daunting, the concept, and very, very fear-inducing. And so the powerlessness is a frightening thing. Men in particular were not raised, men my age, are not raised to be powerless. We're, we're you know, right behind that greatest generation. And so... The admitting is one thing, the acceptance is another. I had to find a way to embrace my powerlessness. To not make this powerlessness my enemy, but to celebrate it. Find a way to celebrate this powerlessness. So how did you find the courage to do that? Two women having a conversation. One was entering um, a phase of diabetes where she was experiencing peripheral neuropathy. Her name is Edith, since deceased. The other woman was Linda, a nurse, a pill addict who could no longer take pills for her pain. And, and um, Ethel asked Linda, how did she live with the pain? And Linda said, I made a decision to embrace the pain. Now, I was two months sober at the time, and I heard that conversation, and they gave me an answer to a question that I didn't know that I'd been asking. Hmm. I'd been asking myself, how does this recovery and sobriety thing work? How does it fit? How does this show? How do I wear it? It is a suit. Is it casual slacks? Is it blue jeans? Is it Monday to Friday? Is it nine to five? How full in do I have to go? <laughs> how honest do I have to get? Yeah, yeah. you know. How much of it do I have to buy into? And so I'm listening to these two women discuss their lives unrelated to my questions, but they gave me my answer. And I made a decision that night that I'm going to embrace this disease of alcoholism. It is no longer my enemy. 
it can be a great gift. It's also harkens back to what you said earlier about waking up in the middle of the night, embracing it, embracing yourself into this is the gift. And so, so once I embraced it, my whole attitude, outlook, and perception of who and what I was began to alter. And, and so the first greatest gift is my first breath. The second greatest gift is a mother's unconditional love. And the third greatest gift is this gift of powerlessness and the ability and desire to embrace it so that it is no longer my enemy. I cannot live to good purpose with an enemy living inside of me. Mm -hmm. I have to change the way I perceive that. I have to change the way I respond to it. Well, and that's the one of the I'm biggest, not a victim. Right. And it's one of the things I've learned in the program. One of the things I try to teach the kids. The only I'm not in the business of outcomes anymore. The only thing I have control over is how I react to it. That's it. I I am no longer in the outcome business. I'm in the not drinking today business. I take the action and leave the outcome. You know, I fill out a credit card application and I'm done with it. You know, I mean, it's that simple. Yeah. I, I, I go through life that way with, with my coworkers. I own a business, but they're not employees. They're coworkers. And I have, as any good business operator should, empower them to succeed. But I also have to empower them to fail so that we all learn and eliminate the risk, the fear, and all that crap. We all learn, we all grow, and we all have a vested interest in each other's successes. That's right. We become partners. Yeah. And, and it's that way in life. It's that way in relationships. So it, it just, it changed everything. I'll so when, when you finally decided to get sober and you said you didn't have a choice, what brought you to your knees and what gave you the courage to get into oh AA as opposed to any other kind of treatment? What brought, okay, this is what brought me to my first meeting in November of, two, of 1999. I had made a sales call on a county establishment, a, a county seat. And part of that county seat was the county jail. And I was calling on a building engineer and I was drunk. I was a 24-hour drunk. At the end, um, the last several years, I'm what they call a maintenance drinker. I don't drink to get drunk and I'm not a weekend warrior. I drink from the time I come to to the time I pass out. I don't get sick from drinking. I get sick when I stop drinking. When I stop drinking, I immediately go into alcohol withdrawal, which leads to DTs, delirium tremens. So I'm a very sick alcoholic. And, and uh, so I, I made a, a sales call on a couple of building engineers at a county jail and they threw me out. And I went back the next day to read them the riot act. And that I was insane and got thrown out again. Now they knew that I didn't ride my bicycle or take the bus there. They know I had driven. Why I was not arrested for at least a PI is just God's grace. So that led me to my first meeting and my first meeting and realized just the insanity and, how lucky and you were. unmanageability of my life that I had stepped over the line and 
this is just beyond abnormal behavior. This was insanity. So I got a friend of mine who I knew was in recovery for 10 years, and he brought me to for my first meeting. And, and, you know, it was all nice and all, but I wasn't sure that you all had what I want. You had a lot of rules, like I had to stop drinking. <laughs> you had a lot of rules, like I had to get honest. You had a lot of rules, like I needed a sponsor. And that I had to do these these 12 steps and... And I'm a business owner and I'm busy, you know, so <laughs> so I don't have time for your nonsense. Give me the Cliff's Notes and I'll be fine. And so I went to meetings for eight months drunk, but I went to meetings and they used to laugh at me. And, and gravity took over. I began coming in. I dislocated a shoulder, dislocated a finger, did a face plant into a rug one night and came into a meeting the next day with a with a scab across my forehead. I mean, it was, it was not, it, it, today I look back and laugh and the people laugh. Mm -hmm. They loved me for, for my antics. They would tell me that, uh, I helped keep them sober, but the DTs and the detoxing was getting very bad. And I detoxed at home a couple of times, detoxed at, um, Hinsdale hospital twice, medical detox. And it was at the second medical detox where a woman named Marlene Winter, now retired, she's my angel. Marlene saved my life. She's now 85 years mm -hmm. old. And we talk a half a dozen times a year. And the first time I was there, Marlene came into my room and told me about Hinsdale Hospital, New Day Center, and rehab and all this stuff. And I threw her out of my room. And the second detox, she came back in and I listened. And I heard her say that we will show you what to do. We will show you how to do it. And we will do it with you. Now, I don't know if that's what she said, but I do know that's what I heard. And I remember saying, okay. You knew you didn't have to do it alone, whatever you that's heard. That's it. For the first time. Yeah. And I remember saying, okay. And I remember a sense, of, a sense of, of ease and comfort and warmth and safety that came over me like I've never experienced before. And I think that might be some kind of an awakening. I was just going to ask you if you think that, that was, was a, a spiritual, spiritual awakening. awakening. You know, we all debate what is an awakening? What is a, what is a spiritual experience? What is an awakening? They are as varied as the people that have them. But according to the literature, they all have one thing in common. And, and I believe this truly, that when a man or a woman has a spiritual experience, the one thing in common that they all seem to have undergone, the, the change is that they begin to feel, do, and believe that which they could not do on their own unaided will, that something has entered them and propelled them to some other level of a state of being. I know that I'm, I'm becoming a man today that I never knew I wanted to be. If you would have told me 19 years ago that I'd be volunteering at Hinsdale Hospital for 18 years, I'd have said you're out of your mind. Mm -hmm. If you would have told me that going to Cook County Jail on Thursday afternoon and working with gangbangers and military vets would be the highlight of my week. I'd have told you, you got the wrong guy. But these guys are amazing, the guys in jail. Well, and it's one of the things we learn in the program. Whatever your concept is of God, that, that higher power, whatever that is, comes to us through other people. Always. And, you, and of course, we also know now, too, that being of service is always something, it's a greater gift to us than it could ever be to the person oh, we're whoa, serving. Oh, that is so 100%. Yeah. I mean, I never... 
It's the gift of all gifts. I never, I I go into the the jail and we talked about it briefly. I mean, I never ask these guys, you know, look, they're in Cook County Jail. They are not there from a gold star program. Mm -hmm. You know, these are some genuinely criminal, hardcore, bad, bad guys. But each one of them are wonderful, wonderful dudes. I never ask what they've done, where they've been or any of that. So there's no judgment. Like you said, I meet them where they're at All I see is their heart and their brokenness. And as a result, these guys have shown me a new way of loving. And it is just amazing. And we also talked recently, too, just I think everything comes from the family of origin. We can't save everyone. We can only do what we can do and be that change and go out in the world and one person at a time try to make a difference but I still struggle with that because you know you look at good hardcore criminals like that or the disadvantaged or the impoverished they're a product of their environment and their family of origins that's really tough so to be able to just love someone for who they are and where they at we all have you know there's redeeming qualities in all of us if we can get deep enough and be vulnerable if we're enough. if we are open enough mm-hmm. and willing enough to, to see beyond our own experiences and our own prejudices yeah. and our own our own weaknesses, our own defects, and our need to, you know, my ego and my pride will cover my defects, cover my, my weaknesses so that I will make me feel better at someone else's expense by, by comparing. I will compare myself. Yeah. You know, I told you about one of my lovely guys, Tim O, 62 years old. And he he was born to an alcoholic addict prostitute. That was his mother. And she left him behind in with his aunts to be raped. And his aunts were the other prostitutes in a whorehouse. And the whorehouse was in Alabama. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Mississippi, in 1965 or 66. So where does life begin for that young man? Where are his role models? I mean, I hear these stories and I see these truths and I look at them and I believe that we all do the best with what we've got. I, I have to believe in some innate sense of good within all of us, except those who are sociological or pathological, I mean, that are really sick people. And so um, I, I have to believe that they, our parents, their parents, they do the best they can with what they've got, no matter how limited. Now, that's okay till I'm age 14, 15, 16, but I need to grow out of that victimhood. At some point, you have to take responsibility and stop blaming your parents. And seek help if I can't. Seek help if I can't. One of the things I learned and that I say to anybody and everybody that I work with in recovery or out, especially to my own kids, but I always ask two questions. Are you willing? Are you capable? Yeah. Because you have to be both. And the other thing I always say to people too, my kids again in particular, is does it need to be said? Does it need to be said now? And does it need to be said by me? Sometimes it's just not my lesson to teach. That's so hard. If I'm talking, I'm really not learning much because I know what I'm going to say. I know everything I think. So through the program, I've learned to listen more, but you really have to be willing to just sit back and take it in. And so to be able to meet these people in the jail or at Hinsdale and to just meet them where they're at is really, I know that it's a gift to you, but where does this guy, Tim O, where does his life begin? Where does it begin? It begins now because today he's aware. Of course, one of the things we learned in the program and something I incorporated in my morning ritual, and that is to always say, thy will be done versus mine. Maybe the bridge between self-will and thy will is awareness. I believe the bridge is love. I'm Jewish. 
And one of my great mentors is a Roman Catholic priest at Notre Dame University, Father Dave. And he and I have had so many wonderful talks through the years and in person and on the phone and hanging out. And, and you know, we, we talk about in the program and in life, what is God's will for me? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? What is my grand design? What is my, you know, and we, we have some of us, these, these tremendous flights of ego-driven fantasy. And out of the Bible, God was lonely and he made man. And he made man so he could be loved. God wanted love and God wanted to love man. And so I think what God's will for me is to love God. And the best way I can love God is by loving man. And I do that imperfectly each day. In, in the 11th step, there's a prayer, the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. And, and it's all about others. God, you know, make me a channel of thy love, thy peace. Where there is darkness, let me bring light. Where there is, where there is hatred, let me bring love. And and it's a wonderful prayer. And and the prayer is not about me, at all. The prayer is about other. The prayer is about being a channel and being available for others. So I don't, I don't try to get too thoughtful and 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 philosophical about God's will for me. God's will for me as an addict and an alcoholic today is simply number one to not drink or drug, and then to try to act in love. And I fail. And I love quotes. Samuel Beckett, the Irish playwright, I love one of his quotes is, ever tried, ever tr fail. No matter, try again, fail again, fail better. <laughs> so I get to fail better. You know, I know I'm changing, I'm making new mistakes. And that's okay. That's all okay. It's all good. Once you got sober, though, after, did you ever relapse? No. No, I never, I thank God. I, what really did the thing for me, and, and, you know, we talk about the obsession of the mind, the allergy of the body, that we are compulsive thinkers of alcohol. You know, birds fly, fish swim. Alcoholics drink, and when they're not drinking, they're thinking of drinking. And I remember it was a Saturday night. I was two weeks sober. I was laying on a couch about two in the morning reading one of the, the, the publications, the 12 and 12 from Alcoholics Anonymous, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. And in the second, second uh, uh, step in the, in the 12 and 12, it gave permission. And the, the second step is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And it says nothing about God. It's just a power greater than myself. And I envision, I remember laying in, in this couch in the middle of the night, and they gave me permission, the book gave me permission, the author gave me permission to use the AA group as a whole, as a higher power. And I envisioned a group at Dunes House in Michigan City, and in those days they could smoke. And the ceiling's about eight feet tall, and the smoke would, would, would hang from the ceiling to about knee level. <laughs> and I imagined a room full of nameless, faceless people doing one day at a time what I could not do for myself. And that was simply not drinking that drug. And that was sufficient for me. Now, I don't know what day, week, or, or month that I transitioned from that group to a God, but it did. And, and I think God is a muscle. Belief oh, and faith that. is a muscle. The more Spiritual I use conditioning. it, the more I use it, the stronger it gets. There, there's an author, Paulo Coelho. I think he's Argentinian or Brazilian, and, mm -hmm. and I've read some of his books. And, and one of his quotes was that faith is a difficult conquest, and it requires frequent battle for its 
for its maintenance, so that the faith I have today is insufficient to sustain me tomorrow or the day after or next week, that, that I must have faith at all times. And so that tells me that I must be present in my own life at all times. It's not like you never think about drinking. Oh, no. Right. Oh, I think, I think these Gen Xers and Millennials have totally ruined booze. I don't know about cotton candy vodka and all this this nonsense fireball crap. No, of course, <laughs> of course I, I think about something. of course I think about drinking. I see a good scotch or a good new bourbon or a great new sipping tequila. And I think, you know, I would have enjoyed that. And then that follows immediately with but I enjoy how I feel today. You know, that alcohol is just not a thought. It's, it doesn't have a presence. I can be around it. I can watch people drink. It, it really just doesn't play that role in my life today. I think one of the most powerful things, too, about being in AA is it's not about promotion. It's about attraction. Yeah. But I struggled with the concept of God, too. Even though I was raised Catholic, I was a, uh, fell away from Catholicism. In fact, was pretty angry at God towards the end and came into the program with very little faith, especially in God. And yeah. fortunately, it gave me a launching pad when I got back into it and started to rebuild the muscle. But for me, the higher power is just sometimes it was just whatever was right in front of me. And I spoke to you earlier about what happened this past week. I've had thoughts of Yes. Alcohol. And, and I'm of the belief that there's alcohol in our house. We socialize with people who drink. We offer people drinks. That's never been a trigger for me. And one of the things that was reaffirmed for me this week is the principle that we learn, which is alcohol or whatever your drug of choice is, it's really just a symptom of what's going on. Yes. So this past week, for the first time, while my thoughts had been of alcohol over the last 20 years or so have been fleeting and nostalgic, triggered by a sound or a sunny day or a rainy, cold, mm -hmm. miserable day. I actually thought about drinking. When you mentioned that, that surprised me. That really kind of shook me a bit. Because, you know, you and I have known each other and we've talked about so many things through the years. And I know that no one of us is ever above a relapse. There, None of us are bulletproof, but that you were going through whatever it was that you were going through, that for that moment or in that moment, that alcohol might have been a solution. And we both know better than that. Yeah, we know better. We know better, but we get to fail and we get to fail better. And we I could, could have failed big. Well, we can fail all we want as long as we don't drink. You know, there there is no perfection in recovery other than not picking up a drink. Yeah, and I was close for the first time in 20 years. What did you do about it? I was alone and spent a lot of time alone, and I love it. But I felt lonely and mm. despondently so, and for various reasons. And I knew all the things I should do. I knew I should pick up the phone. I thought about calling you, thought of calling a couple other people. I should go to a meeting. I should write a gratitude list. But I was sitting in a chair and absolutely paralyzed. I was gripping the arms of a chair and I thought to myself, if I get up out of this chair, I'm going to go drink. And then I thought, 
I'll just have one. <laughs> the great lie. <laughs> there was the devil on this side and the angel on this side. And I had this tug of war for over an hour, sitting on the chair, feeling absolutely immobilized. And I played it out and I tried to reach out to two people. But, you know, we want what we want when we want it. And they didn't answer and they didn't respond when I wanted them to respond. They certainly called back within a reasonable amount of time. I was finally able to get a hold of somebody, but it wasn't enough. For yeah. alcoholics, nothing is ever enough. We, it's, it was unmanageable. And I could tell you all the things that I was grateful for, but I didn't feel any no. of those things. I could have said, I don't have everything I want today, but I have everything I need. I didn't care. I didn't care. I felt numb. And the only thing that saved me was the fellowship. That was my higher power. And you know who popped into my, my head was Harry. Harry. From Harry the meeting. G, yeah. And that meeting that we go to, I've never seen Harry outside of that meeting ever oh, really? in all the years I've lived here. But every time I have been at that meeting on Saturday morning, Harry has it's always there. been in that chair. And Every time I've seen him at a meeting, he always, one of the things he says in his comments is, I touch one part of each step every single day. And I thought, I'll be damned. He just died two weeks ago, and that's what was creeping in my head. And I thought, it's Harry carrying the message. That's, that's the truth. It's one alcoholic to another. And for the people not in recovery, it's just one person to another carrying the message of good of love it, building the bridge and we don't have to be alcoholic or addict to to we to all are recovering from something. something from life so after over an hour sitting in that chair going back and forth feeling afraid and paralyzed and worthless and useless i thought well if harry is here in my head telling me to touch the steps the least I can do for Harry is to pick up my phone, pull up my app, and read the steps. Yeah. So I did that. And then I was like, damn it. And then I looked up a meeting. I was out of town. I looked up a meeting. And I was like, well, it's kind of late. I'll try. And I literally out talked out loud to myself, got myself up out of that chair, got my stuff together, got to the car, went to the meeting. It was a first step. And <laughs> it was... Coincidence? It was probably a hundred people and wow. you know, I don't like to talk to more than two people and they, it was so big. They were actually going to split the meeting, but they didn't. And so I certainly was going to talk and at six twenty-seven, three minutes before the end of the meeting and it just shot out of me and I told them what was going on and I told them the truth. And I said, after over 20 years of sobriety, I feel like drinking again, but I got here and I don't know how I did it. It wasn't me. Do you know how many people you helped that night? You can't estimate. If there were a hundred people in that meeting, you helped ninety-five of them. Yeah, Our truth, your truth, your honesty, your willingness to be vulnerable—that's what it comes from. Uh, and and I heard you talking about feelings. I felt this, and I felt that, and I felt this. And one thing I've learned is that my feelings are rarely rooted in fact. They're just feelings. And I'm going to get them, whether I want them or not. Mm. And it's what I do about my feelings, what I do with my feelings, that determines the outcome. 
And I kept saying before Harry popped in my head, I kept saying this too shall pass, this too shall pass. All stuff I learned yeah. in the meetings. And it was just because of the repetitions. Like you talked about the muscle, the God muscle. It was the spiritual conditioning. Just doing it over and over. Keep coming back. Turn it over. Surrender. You know, all the cliches, they work because they are cliches. But you took the action, and the action was getting out the phone, pulling up the app, and reading those steps. And you found in one of those steps whatever it was that you were looking for. That you didn't even know what you were looking for. But you found it, and you didn't drink. And I thank God for that. That's the thing, I think, to remember. You know, we're all going to have emotions. That's part of being human. We all feel to the same stuff. Today is not forever. What I feel today is not for, unless I make it so. Unless you dwell there. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people that are struggling? I try not to give advice. What do you I... think about people that... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've said in meetings that I've been in meetings where, you know, people are giving out advice and I'm thinking, how horrible, how unfair. You know, it doesn't say in any of the literature we're there to give advice. We share our experience, strength, and hope. And if I don't have experience in a given area, I best be quiet because mm -hmm. I might kill someone. You know, what keeps me sober could get you drunk. So I need to be very judicious with that. But, you know, to those who are struggling, talk to someone and, and not just those who love you, those who love you can harm you through through their love and ignorance, you know, and, and... And their codependence. Yeah, oh, that's the ignorance. The codependency is just horrible. And and alcoholics are some of the most codependent people in the world, by the way. It's not just the husbands and wives of the active drinker, alcohol, oh, yeah. you know, or, or addict. But to, to, to talk to someone, you're not alone. You are so not alone. And what you are feeling... And, and what you're going through, you are not unique. If what you feel or if what you has, have done has a name for it, someone has done it or felt it before. You know, and, and there was a, a French Jesuit philosopher. He's one of the new guys. He only died like 50 years ago. His name was Pierre Teilhard de Jardin. And he said, that which is deeply personal is most universal. And so that those things that that are within me that create the most shame and the most guilt and the most remorse and those things that I want to lock away deep, deep, deep within my soul are the most universal things that we've all felt, seen, or done. And uh, I am not alone. And there's no need to live alone. And it's about creating connection. It's through through taking the action, the connection is met is is made. And it's Mark Nebel that says that you know he's one of my favorite spiritual writers who says that the challenge is helping each other to come out of our shell and yes. then to live there once we're out of it. Yes. And for me, that's what people like you and and others have have done because at least now I know in moments like that my recovery and my determination to to keep going and to keep trying and to just not quit and to get into the arena, yeah. as Teddy Roosevelt said, and Brene Brown now quotes all the time, is what it's about. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I, I do a rapid fire round of questions at uh -oh. the end. You ready? Is this like Jeopardy? It's like Jeopardy, except okay. you don't win any money. Oh. <laughs> all right. Favorite sound? Laughter. Favorite smell? Fresh cut grass. Mm. Favorite food? Home cooked. Favorite type of music? 
uh, 60s, 70s, 80s classic rock. What scares you and makes you feel vulnerable today? Not much, because if it's my truth, it's mine. I own it. If you really wanted someone to know you, what would you want them to know? That I'm in... I'm in process, that I'm not complete. I'll never be complete, but I, I, I'm, I'm willing to continue to try. Most influential person in your life? My father. What's next? What's the impossible task or dream ahead of you that's calling you to be courageous? I'm on the board of a nonprofit. We're putting together um, a 28-day patient in, uh, inpatient program in a county here in Indiana that is in desperate need. The opioid and meth problem is just so horrible. Alcoholism is what it is. It's still on the rise, incrementally, but still on the rise. And that's the next challenge. I want to be an active participant, taking what I've been given at Hinsdale Hospital, at Cook County Jail, and bring it here. Last question. What do you want to be remembered for? Honestly, that I'm remembered is not so much important as that. Those who've impacted me and I've impacted continue to live in an impactful way. It's not so much about my being remembered as that I am eternally grateful for all those who came before me. Yeah. It's on their coattails that I've ridden. My being remembered is none of my business. My remembering them is what I need to do. I really appreciate you being here and for being so honest and open. Thank you so much. And vulnerable, and you've made a difference in so many lives. So thank you for that and for your your good works. Thank you. For anyone listening who's struggling with addiction, there's one thing I know for sure. You don't have to do it alone. We were not meant to do it alone. None of us are. So if you need more information about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can reach out to me anytime by emailing me at humormewithmo at gmail.com. You can also Google... AA local meetings and find them wherever you live or wherever you're traveling. Yep, they are all over the world. We are everywhere. Yes, so don't give up. It matters because you matter. You do. Until next time, be brave, be bold, be daring, and take a bite of courage. See you next week. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into my podcast, Bite of Courage. To learn more about my guests, you can go to biteofcourage.com or go to my website, humormewithmo.com, where I also post weekly articles about finding humor in life's absurdities. Until next time, be bold, be daring, be brave, and take a bite of courage. This is a trio production, all rights reserved.